and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Deborah Messing is probably best known for her role as Grace Adler on the long-running sitcom Will and Grace. She has starred in movies and even been the voice behind cartoons. But for the past several months, she has been one of the voices behind a podcast called The Dissenters. Since May, Deborah and her co-host, Mandana Dayani, have interviewed men and women who have made their mark challenging the status quo. But the penultimate episode that aired this month was particularly powerful— Deborah and her co-host invited Dr. Edith Eva Eager, a 93-year-old Holocaust survivor, to share her memories of the past and thoughts on present-day politics and the future. Deborah is here now to talk about that episode and her own experiences with anti-Semitism. Deborah, welcome. Thank you so much. So tell us about this podcast, The Dissenters, what you're trying to accomplish with each episode, and how your conversation with Dr. Eager fit that theme. The Dissenters was created as a response to the suffering that we saw around our country over the last few years, and also in response to the activists that have stepped forward and taken it upon themselves to try and make things better. My friend, Mandana Dayani, she is the co-host. She was a religious refugee, came to the country at six years old. She and I have both been very active in activism. Reading these pieces about these extraordinary people from around the world doing extraordinary things, and we would send them to each other in order to sort of buoy each other when we would start to feel overwhelmed and It always sort of kept us moving forward. Mm -hmm. And one day we just realized that as much as it was uplifting us, it would most likely uplift other people to hear about the works of these, what we call accidental activists. We wanted to ultimately inspire and empower people to recognize that you don't have to have a certain education. You don't have to have a certain following in social media in order to be an activist. All you have to do is just recognize something that feels wrong and take one step towards doing something. How did Dr. Eager fit into this lineup? She is a 93-year-old Holocaust survivor who came face-to-face with Dr. Mengele when she was a teenager at the camps. She lost her mom and dad and went through horrible torture and trauma and came to America and created a family and ultimately got a PhD and has used her experience and trauma in order to help people coming home from war to heal from their Mm -hmm. trauma. She has written two books and she decided to become a healer. And we just felt like she did not have any idea what her life would be once she got out of the concentration camp. Yeah. And she was able to look towards the future, to have hope, and ultimately choose to do something that would help others. How did you first discover Dr. Eager? 
Mandana and I are just really, really curious people. So, you know, we are constantly reading. We are, you know, watching TED Talks. It was a TED Talk of her that we saw. And ultimately, we felt, given the fact that there is this surge of anti-Semitism and racial strife in our country, that it felt particularly timely and important to highlight her and her journey. Because in our research, we discovered that three quarters of millennials who are people who are in their mid-30s do not know what Auschwitz is. Such a stunning statistic and really kind of unimaginable that we felt like, okay, this it's incumbent on us to have someone who was there and lived it to assert that it really did happen and to celebrate her as well. You mentioned the lack of knowledge about concentration camps. AJC, of course, just released its first report on the state of anti-Semitism in America and found that more than half of Americans don't know the meaning of the word anti-Semitism. Some haven't even heard the word before. With Charlottesville and, you know, the seemingly explosion of white nationalism and anti-Semitism and Nazis everywhere, in juxtaposition to this second wave of civil rights protesting, it's very interesting that people don't protest against anti-Semitism. People flood the streets for racism. And when you look at Charlottesville, the Nazis were screaming about two groups, about Black people and Jews. And we really are the most natural allies in the world. And it really was just something that I just sat with for a while about like, why is it that people don't protest for us? You're Jewish. You grew up in a predominantly non-Jewish environment. Did you experience anti-Semitism growing up? I did. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I remember I was in second grade and we were lining up uh, to go to gym. And I got in line and a little boy turned to me and said, get to the back of the line, kike. Mm. And I didn't know what the word meant. The teacher overheard and immediately grabbed the boy and sent him down to the principal's office. And I remember everyone looking at me like I had done something wrong. And as much as I didn't understand what was happening, I understood that it would have been better if I had just stayed silent. And, you know, I just wanted the boy to come back and everybody to just, you know, be normal and stop looking at me. And a couple of years later, it was Halloween and my grandfather was visiting and we woke up and a swastika was painted on his car in our driveway. And I recall my mother just standing at the front door looking at it. And I felt her fear. I felt in danger. And I remember no one said a word. Just, you know, my mom said, get in the house. And somehow the car disappeared and we didn't talk about it. And so it became very clear to me from a very young age that I was an other that I was different from everybody in the community. 
and that difference wasn't good. And somehow I had taken on a sense of shame about the fact that I was Jewish. And I actually recall in high school, my father was president of the temple, president of the Jewish Federation. My mother was vice president of the Jewish Federation. Very, very, very active in the community. And we would stay home, obviously, for the high holidays. And I remember coming back in after the high holidays and someone saying, why were you out? And I said, oh, it was Yom Kippur. And they got really mad. And they were like, how come you get that off and you get Christmas off? Why don't we get that off? And after that encounter, anytime I would stay home because of a Jewish holiday, I would lie and say that I had been sick. Wow. I want to go back to your conversation with Dr. Eager, and I'd like for you to share what your biggest takeaways were. It's so powerful because she speaks about the last thing that her mother said to her in the cattle car, that essentially reality is whatever you have in your mind and in your heart. And bad things pass, trauma passes. And her first night there, Joseph Mengele went into the barracks and made her dance. And she loved opera. And she said that she got through it because she imagined that she was on a stage and they were playing Tchaikovsky, Romeo and Juliet. And she said, and I danced beautifully and I loved it. That's how I survived. Mm -hmm. For me, what was really remarkable was hearing everything that she went through and the fact that where she landed was that she was grateful for all of the terror and trauma and pain that she had experienced. She felt that she literally calls them a gift. That is something that is so antithetical to the way at least I think about someone who has survived the Holocaust it really was a full paradigm shift for me to hear how she got there and ultimately how she healed herself. Yeah. Well, certainly the, the testimonies of the survivors are a gift to all of us in terms of preserving the memory and the lessons that we can take from their experiences. So thank you for giving Dr. Eager another platform to share that story with another audience that needs to learn and learn the lessons of her experience. I will tell you one of the most moving parts for me was the separation from her mother when they got to Auschwitz and how the experience of children being separated from their parents at the border was a trigger for her. Honestly, I can't do it justice. Let's listen to a clip. When I saw children being separated at the border, I had terrible nightmares remembering when my mother was told to go this way. I followed my mother and this guy told me that I'm going to see my mother very soon. She's just going to take a shower. And promptly I was on the other side, which meant life. So you see, uh, many things trigger today for me the time when everything was taken away from me. Why was it important to include that in the podcast? I think 
when we witness that kind of wrongdoing that is really a crime against humanity, it reminds us how fragile we are, Mm. that we don't learn from the past, potentially, and that we have to be vigilant every day in making sure that what we are putting out into the world is modeling compassion and inclusion. The podcast is called The Dissenters. To learn more, visit their website, thedissenters.com, or you can subscribe to The Dissenters on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. We'll include these links in our show notes. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. The rest of this week's episode was recorded live. Earlier this week, New York City's Temple Emanuel Stryker Center hosted People of the Pod for a live recording in front of a virtual audience. Our conversation centered on AJC's recently released report on the state of anti-Semitism in America. AJC released its first-ever State of Anti-Semitism in America report based on parallel surveys of American Jews and the general public. Released just before the second anniversary of the Pittsburgh synagogue attack, the report found shocking gaps between American Jews and Americans in general on the severity of Jew hatred here, as well as truly troubling lack of awareness among Americans about modern-day expressions of anti-Semitism. Avi Mayer, AJC Managing Director of Global Communications, and Holly Huffnagel, AJC U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism, are here with us now to discuss the report's findings and what they mean for efforts to combat anti-Semitism in America. Holly, Avi, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you, Manya. Holly, Avi, it's so good to have you on with us. Polls are everywhere right now. Not just these important AJC polls, but also national and state polls to try to anticipate the results of next week's election. And we'll come back to politics uh, in a few minutes. Uh, But many, many people, um, I'm sure, are wondering about just how reliable these polls are. Um, So before we get into what the data say, uh, Avi, can you help us understand how reliable the AJC report is? Absolutely. Thank you, Sefi, and thank you, Manya, and thank you to the Stryker Center for hosting this wonderful event today. Um, The answer is extremely reliable. Um, We've worked with a very highly reputable uh, opinion research company called SSRS uh, that has worked with the largest names in the field, including CNN and Pew and others, um, to ensure that our data was absolutely ironclad. This is not the first time that we have worked with SSRS. We've done so for several years now. Um, And what we were particularly pleased by in this particular instance um, is that we actually got the largest sample of American Jews that we have ever had in any survey conducted by AJC. We reached 1,334 respondents, which is a truly astounding number, far uh, above any uh, minimum sample necessary for a survey of this kind. And that was the survey sample that we had for the American Jewish community. As you said, also conducted a parallel survey of the general public, which reached 1,010 people, again, a, 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 an absolutely uh, ironclad sample for a survey of this kind, and one that is absolutely considered the industry standard uh, when conducting opinion research of this type. Well, I, I, for one, appreciate you verifying the credibility of this report. I think 
in this day and age of propaganda and misinformation, that is extremely important to show that these are facts. Um, let's talk about those facts. First, you, you, you mentioned that AJC has conducted polls in the past. It conducted a similar poll last year of American Jews. Did anything change or continue to concern you in that particular survey? Well, it's an interesting question. Last year was the first time that we or anyone conducted a survey of American Jews on anti-Semitism in America. Um, and of course, the context was the aftermath of the horrific attacks in Pittsburgh and Poway uh, and subsequently in New Jersey and also in New York. Um, we wanted to see how American Jews were feeling about anti-Semitism, how they were perceiving it, how they were experiencing it, what they considered to be anti-Semitic. Um, and sure enough, we found that anti-Semitism was very much on the minds of American Jews. Uh, last year, nine out of 10 American Jews said that anti-Semitism is indeed a problem in the United States. Eight out of 10 said that it's a problem that is getting steadily worse and has gotten worse over the past five years. Significant numbers said that they were taking steps to conceal their Jewishness in public, um, that they were avoiding certain places or situations out of fear for their safety or comfort as Jews. Um, and in fact, we found almost identical numbers this year as well. Again, nine out of 10 American Jews said that anti-Semitism is indeed a problem in America. Eight out of 10, again, said that anti-Semitism is a problem that is getting worse. And perhaps most troublingly, we see that one out of three, more than one out of three, 37% of American Jews say that they have been personal victims of anti-Semitism over the past five years. Now, in most cases, the overwhelming majority of cases, these are not physical attacks, thank God. We're not talking about... Uh, individuals who are saying that they are being physically assaulted for being Jews, that was a fairly small percentage, I believe 3% who said that they were. But they are encountering anti-Semitism in a variety of different ways, online, in everyday conversation, encountering anti-Semitic tropes. Um, and this is something that is fairly prevalent amongst American Jewry. And I have to say that it cuts across all differences of age, denomination, political affiliation, uh, place of residence in the country. Um, this is something that is being felt very acutely by American Jews. Um, and I have to say another statistic that really stood out to me and I think to many uh, of our community members um, is that one out of five, 24%, sorry, one out of four, 24% uh, of the respondents said that they had over the past two years actively concealed their Jewishness in public. So they refrained from carrying items that would identify them as Jewish. They perhaps chose not to wear a kippah or a Jewish star or a uh, t-shirt with Hebrew writing or with Jewish, uh, Jewish insignia on it. That is extremely troubling that one out of every four American Jews have felt compelled to take steps like that over the past two years. And of course, it troubles us very deeply. So this year, the general public was polled. So did you find most Americans in agreement with their Jewish neighbors or some chasms? This was the surprise, I think, um, the divergent findings between American Jews and the general public. And we really wanted to ascertain what, what does Americans think about the state of anti-Semitism? And as Avi mentioned, uh, we found that, you know, nine in 10 American Jews believe anti-Semitism is a problem in the U.S. today. Six in 10 Americans do. So 63% of Americans do. But I think maybe even more importantly, Eight in 10, as Avi mentioned, American Jews say anti-Semitism has increased, but that number drops to half. Four in 10 Americans, members of the general public, um, believe it has escalated. So it's, it's, it's a half, um, half as many. And this, uh, the last five years, you know, again, includes the attacks in Pittsburgh, Poway, Jersey City, Muncie, um, and the continuous attacks against Jews in, in Brooklyn. We have data, FBI data, that shows this increase. And there is this lack of awareness amongst the general public uh, about what's, what's happening. 
And I think, you know, another big finding from the from the general public survey was just that a lack of awareness about the term anti-Semitism it's, itself among U.S. adults. And so the very first question we asked, like the opening question right out of the gate, uh, was how familiar are you with the term anti-Semitism? And we found that one in five Americans, 21 percent, have never heard the term. So, you know, that was a big, a big eye opener. The other finding was that one in four, you know, 20, um, 25% heard it, but didn't know what it meant. So here we have nearly half of the American population, 46% really aren't familiar uh, with the term anti-Semitism. Let me come in here and ask, because, you know, AJC is known for doing, not for researching. Holly, your title is our U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism. Um, it's important for us to get this information to inform the work that we do, but how will it? What does it mean for Jewish advocacy work that nearly half of Americans don't know what anti-Semitism means? Holly, let's start with you. This data is actually really enlightening. Um, it, it shows how much work I have ahead of me, ahead of us. Um, when we look at the breakdowns, we can see that education levels actually has a lot to do with how the respondents, um, like how they how they responded. So, for instance, when it comes to those who had never heard the term anti-Semitism before, 36 percent had a high school education uh, or less. So so education is really critical here uh, in our efforts to to raise awareness. Um, and speaking of raising awareness, and I should have said this already. After we asked that first question, whether they had heard the term anti-Semitism before, whether they were familiar, we did define it for them before proceeding with the rest of the questions about the state of anti-Semitism in America. So, Sefi, the the second thing I think for our advocacy is we need to be able to advocate for for the Jewish community to be the ones to define uh, anti-Semitism. And I know that sounds like, why would that that be an issue? Um, But one of our other big key findings uh, that we asked the general public was, you know, if a Jewish person or organization considered a statement or idea to be anti-Semitic, would it make you more likely to consider it anti-Semitic, less likely, or no difference? And we found that 65% of Americans said that it, it wouldn't make a difference if someone who was Jewish or a Jewish organization said something was anti-Semitic. In fact, 7% said it would make them less likely, uh, which is which is troubling, especially that 7%. Now, looking at that 65%, Okay, maybe they already know what anti-Semitism is. Give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe. But if they don't, you know, we really want to ensure that if there's ever a question about what is anti-Semitic or what is not, that the Jewish community uh, can be the arbiter of, of, of that decision. So that's something we'll also be working on going forward. So, Holly, I want to go back to that finding that people didn't know the the meaning of the term anti-Semitism. I want to push back a little bit because that's what I do. Um, And I want to point out that anti-Semitism, well, it could be considered a pretty complicated term. Why don't we just call it what it is? Jew hatred. I mean, surely that would get the point across. Manya, you you bring up a point. You're part of a scholarly debate um, that is happening <laughs> that is happening around us, um, and it's a debate because the term anti-Semitism itself was popularized by an anti-Semite uh, at the turn of the 19th century in Germany, a man named Wilhelm Marr. It's it's a modern term. It's a purposefully scientific sounding one. It actually um, pulls from linguistics, from philology, uh, coming from the word Semitic, uh, which is referring to ra- uh, to to languages. Um, so Amharic, Arabic, uh, Hebrew. So it's really even not a racial uh, term, but it's been racialized. 
so there's some issues with the term itself, but this is where I'm going to push, this is where I'll push back. I think when people hear the word Jew hatred, which might seem to cover everything, in the field, it really doesn't. Um, we find that, you know, anti-Semitism is, is much more than a hatred of Jews. It's a certain perception of Jews connected to some alleged evil, um, to conspiracy theories, right, about tropes of, you know, Jewish power or control, where Jews are assailed for somehow controlling something or being invo- you know, involved with something or their wealth being used for something. And that's what makes anti-Semitism different from other forms of, of racism, of, of bigotry. And we heard this, AJC, we, we hear this a lot, actually, from either celebrities or, you know, um, political candidates who will say something anti-Semitic, maybe a trope about, you know, Jewish power or control, and then they'll say, well, I don't hate Jews. I don't hate them. It's not Jewish. So this isn't anti-Semitic. I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm not spreading anti-Semitism. And the reality is, you know, yes, yes, they are. And so that's why I think the term anti-Semitism is actually very useful. We just need to do a better job at explaining how it encompasses um, all these different forms um, today. It's a, it's an umbrella term for suspicion and fear and yeah all of that. Okay, that may, that's a compelling argument. It's, it's still worthy of debate, but compelling. <laughs> but you know, it actually it puts a a project that AJC did a year ago into better perspective. C- could you speak a little bit about the translate hate glossary? So AJC published um, a glossary of anti-Semitic terms and tropes a year ago um, called Translate Hate, and it was done to increase awareness about what anti-Semitism looks like uh, in the 21st century. Um, And, you know, even for instance, you know, we see Christian anti-Jewish medieval tropes, whether it be the blood libel or even the deicide charge, uh, still being used in different contexts today, whether it be in the Middle East, um, just recycled and, and, and made to look a little bit different. And I think it's so important um, for individuals to understand the history of anti-Semitism and how it's changed over time. And it's still, unfortunately, uh, with us. And, and we're currently updating um, our resource, Manya, right now as we speak to incorporate new terms and tropes, um, really, that have come out of, of 2020. I imagine it is a, a, always going to be a living, breathing document, <laughs> for sure. Um, Avi, any, anything you want to add to that? This is something, again, that we felt was necessary to create simply because, uh, as Holly said, sometimes people engage in anti-Semitic tropes without even noticing, without even realizing the the deep historic roots of the things that they're saying. Um, So when we accuse, for example, Jews uh, of being more loyal to Israel than to the United States, that is regarded by the overwhelming majority of American Jews as an anti-Semitic trope. We know that based on our research, and we know it instinctively. Um, And yet it's something that we hear quite often. Um, not only uh, in everyday conversation, but sometimes even the halls of power. Um, and sometimes very prominent figures will engage in this kind of rhetoric. And so that's why it was so important to us to ensure that we were giving the facts to our community and to the world at large, that they had that information at their fingertips to identify, expose, and if necessary, report anti-Semitism, whether they encounter it online or off. I found that 7% figure particularly troubling, that even if a Jewish organization or individual says a statement or idea is anti-Semitic, they would be less likely to consider it anti-Semitic. Who gets to say then? I mean, will, will, these, will this particular result lead AJC to do anything different going forward to really turn the tide? I hope so. You know, I think that we need to be an authority about what anti-Semitism is and, and what it looks like today. And I, and I think we are. And, you know, in the same way that 
Um, other groups might be able to define the prejudice against them. You know, we might look to African-American community to define anti-Black racism or, or women to define misogyny or, or LGBTQ plus um, groups to define homophobia or transphobia. The Jewish community, you know, people should look to us to understand uh, and define anti-Semitism. Let me jump in here with a couple questions. One, Holly there was a much publicized decision a couple of weeks ago now about uh, Facebook choosing to uh, to ban Holocaust denial content from their Facebook and Instagram platforms. And I know that AJC and you specifically played uh, played a role in that. Is there a, a next frontier in terms of addressing hate on social media platforms? And do we think that this data would speak well to people who we traditionally assume are data-minded folks in Silicon Valley and thereabout? I do think there is a next frontier. In fact, I think we're actually beginning to be in it right now. Um, You know, even a few years ago, many of these tech platforms um, would kind of throw up their, their hands and say, it's a, it's a, you know, f- you know, free speech, you know, this is our platform, but you know, the, the, it's a marketplace of ideas. The best ideas will rise to the top and, and we're not going to moderate the content. We're not going to control it. You know, it, you know, best of luck to anyone who wants to engage. It, it's almost a 180 degrees already. And even with, um, and I'll just mention Facebook in particular, it's the, it's the tech platform that um, I've had the opportunity to engage with, with the most. We've even seen changes in the last six months so, for instance, with when it comes to anti-Semitism, um, there's our uh, Facebook's has um, in their community standards and their policies, they have something called protected characteristics, where um, and Jews and Israelis are part of of, of the, that group, and if they're attacked, um, that content can be removed. But there really wasn't anything else related to anti-Semitism um, in their policies, and so already we've been uh, able to actually use the IRA working definition, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance working definition of anti-Semitism to give an example of, of stereotypes about, Jew, uh, about Jews or, um, again, that conspiracy theories of wealth and, and power and control. And now Facebook's taking that into account and, and some of that content can be removed. And then most recently, as you mentioned, I think a really big win and AJC was, was one organization, but there were many other organiza- like others involved with this and it's a long fight to remove Holocaust denial. For the longest time, Holocaust denial fell under Facebook's misinformation um, category. So it was allowed to stay up. It, it was deemed as misinformation. They might have um, uh, you know, uh, downplayed it, not, not, well, not let it have as much reach, but it was still allowed to exist. And now um, there's this recent change and, and, we, and we laud it. I think now, uh, just before this next question, is as good a time as any to remind our audience that AJC is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization that neither endorses nor opposes candidates for elective office. And by the way, I I believe the Temple Emanuel Striker Center is as well. Um, so let me hold that umbrella over them as well. That being said, the survey results do point fingers at our political parties for being sources of anti-Semitism. Though a number of respondents were concerned about anti-Semitism in the Democratic Party, a much larger chunk were worried about anti-Semitism coming from the Republican Party. What kind of conclusions can we draw then uh, about anti-Semitism in politics from these findings? We did ask uh, our respondents um, about the sources of anti-Semitism. We know that anti-Semitism comes from multiple sources. AJC has been talking about this for several decades now, that there are three primary sources of anti-Semitism. There's the far right, 
there's the hard left, and there is extremism propagated in the name of Islam. And we asked our respondents about those three sources and which of them they regarded as the greatest anti-Semitic threat. And sure enough, all the respondents uh, did identify uh, that there were threats posed by these different sources, but there was a hierarchy. Um, we found that, as you say, Sefi, um, the far right is regarded by American Jews as posing the greatest threat to them as Jews, the greatest anti-Semitic threat in America. Um, we found that uh, is, a, extremism propagated in the name of Islam is regarded as the second most serious threat, and that extremism from the hard left comes third. Uh, what I thought was very interesting, though, and we also asked about political parties, and of course, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, we saw that those who identified as Democrats saw anti-Semitism primarily in the Republican Party. Those who identified as Republican uh, saw anti-Semitism primarily in the Democratic Party. Um, but what we saw this year, as we saw last year as well, is that there are many respondents who are identified with a party who also say that there is anti-Semitism within their own political camp. That is extremely important because it really forces us and our, our leadership to look within and see where anti-Semitism can be identified within our own political camps, to look within and identify and really root out that anti-Semitism in a meaningful way. It's very easy to point fingers, particularly in this hyper-partisan environment, particularly in this uh, moment in time, right before an election, um, and accuse the other party of engaging in bigotry or anti-Semitism. It's a lot harder to do that when it's coming from your from your own camp. And yet what we see is that American Jews are demanding that that happen because they know that anti-Semitism exists in some form or another on both sides of the political map. Avi, Holly, thank you so much for shedding light on this really important data uh, and giving people what they need to, to fight this and combat it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I just want to remind our listeners about that link, ajc.org slash report. If you want to pour over the data yourself, go for it. Uh, you, will be, you will be better for it. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is a very special guest, AJC CEO David Harris. Manya, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Thank you, Sefi. I will still be thinking about the conversation that we just had. At our Shabbat table, we will be talking about the same survey finding that astounded me last year and changed very little this year. One out of four American Jews don't like to advertise their Judaism. They don't feel safe wearing a yarmulke on their head or a Star of David around their neck. They keep their Judaism hidden from friends and colleagues. I was like that once, and so was my mother. When on Monday mornings, the teachers at her public school in Texas asked everyone to stand if they went to church the day before, she rose from her seat, knowing it wasn't honest. And when friends asked me if I went to church, I answered honestly, but couldn't bring myself to go that extra step and explain why. Instead, I chose to endure the dire warnings about my doomed afterlife. Somehow that seemed like the better, safer option. But something changed in January of this year when AJC launched its Jewish and Proud campaign to show solidarity with Jews who were being attacked in Brooklyn for simply being and looking Jewish. That week, I marched across the Brooklyn Bridge with my daughter Rose and thousands of others. But that week, I also did something more subtle. Since my father passed away last spring, I have worn his Masonic ring around my neck, a gift my mother and I gave him for his birthday 35 years ago. That week in January... I added a Star of David charm to the chain. It dangles inside the band of my father's ring, kind of emitting a 
if you can hear it, a gentle chime now and then. That chime reminds me of who I am, who I came from, and the courage and pride I want to instill in my children. Courage, because my father chose to be Jewish. He converted after marrying my mom, and while we weren't an observant family, I still look back on that choice with awe. What a bold move for a young man raised on a farm in central Illinois in a little town called Cornland to make that part of his identity and that of his children. It's an identity I no longer take for granted or hide. But the numbers speak for themselves on this survey. I understand why some do, and I don't blame them a bit. It's the same reason why we wear a mask during this pandemic. We want to protect ourselves, our families, those around us from harm. Won't it be nice when this pandemic is over? Won't it be nice when we can take off the masks and everyone can see who we are without feeling like we need to hide to be safe? It's up to all of us. It's true as we confront this pandemic. It's true as we confront hate. It's up to all of us. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table. Seppi? Mania, that was so lovely. And, and I remember having the special experience of meeting your daughter, Rose, at that march across the Brooklyn Bridge. Of course, I'll also be thinking about the survey this week, but I'll be thinking about another thing as well. 53 years ago, Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, was in the news. Then it was playing host to a summit of the Arab League. In the immediate aftermath of the Six-Day War, the Arab states smarting from their defeat and from Israel's conquering of the Golan Heights, the West Bank, Gaza, and the Sinai Peninsula, wanted to show a united front against Israel to the world. They adopted a resolution, which became infamous overnight as the three no's, no peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no negotiations with it. It would take another Israeli-Arab war and 12 years for the first cracks in that united front to appear when Israel and Egypt made peace in 1979. 15 years after that, Israel and Jordan made peace. That was 26 years ago this week. And that was it. Two cold strategic pieces, several half measures with the Palestinians, and a couple of aborted attempts with Syria. Otherwise, the three no's remained intact. In 2016, astute followers of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process heard four no's. In December of that year, outgoing Secretary of State John Kerry spoke at the Brookings Institution's Saban Forum, raising the question himself, hypothetically, of whether Israel could get around their conflict with the Palestinians and make peace directly with other Arab states. Secretary Kerry answered himself emphatically, saying no, 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 and no. It's hard to blame Kerry, even as Israel was engaging under the table with several Gulf Arab states, even as AJC was openly doing the same, and even as Arab leaders were making public statements about a new openness toward Israel's presence in the region, you would have been hard-pressed to find a respected Middle East analyst in Washington who would have told you that such a thing was possible. Fast forward less than four years. This summer, as we all know by now, and as we have discussed on this podcast, Israel signed full normalization agreements with the UAE and Bahrain. Now, just last week, Khartoum was again in the news. Not for the three no's this time, but for being the third yes. The third Arab country this year to say yes to peace and normalization with Israel. And there are signs that more may yet follow. 
What do we learn from this? While it can be tempting to draw sweeping conclusions about the effectiveness of the political leadership in the U.S., Israel, and the Arab states. Indeed, thanks are due to all three sets of leaders. But the quote I have echoing in my head for the past week, and the one I'll be sharing at my Shabbat table, has been this one from a long-gone Israeli leader, the father of the Jewish state, David Ben-Gurion. If an expert says it can't be done, get another expert. David, what's on your mind this week? I'd like to thank the Stryker Center and this Temple Emmanuel, my, my dear friend, Josh Davidson, as well as the host for this conversation, my AJC colleagues, Manya and Sefi, and the panelists for this discussion, Holly and Avi. And I take away several things from both the discussion and from the survey, Sefi, and they're of concern, they're of real concern, that even amidst our ongoing experience as the most successful, thriving, prosperous, and equal Jewish community in the history of the diaspora, we have challenges. And we dare not, we must not ignore those challenges. The AJC surveys are a warning that things are not entirely right. When as many as 46% of the American people generally do not really understand what anti-Semitism is, and 21% cannot even define what anti-Semitism is, when nearly 90% of American Jews identify anti-Semitism as a serious problem, and when many say that it is a growing problem, and they identify it as a problem of multiple sources, we, American Jews, need to be alert. We need not only to listen to these discussions, as this one at the Stryker Center, we need to consider the day after and day after what it is that we're going to do. Not just what we're going to discuss at our own Shabbat table, as important as that is, Manya and Sefi. What are we actually going to do? Are we simply going to wait for the next survey and hope that the numbers go in the right direction? Or are we going to take action? Take action as Jews, as Manya said, as proud Jews? Are we going to take action as Americans, believing that this is not the face of America as we believe it ought to be? Are we going to join with other communities? I think the answer has to be yes, yes, and yes. And that's why AJC, for me, is the most important platform today for confronting these issues. And one last thought, because sitting at the Shabbat table for me includes my grandchildren, and one in particular, whom I took to the Chabad nursery school, which she attends the day after the Poway shooting, or the days after. And she looked at me as this toddler, and she said to me, Papi, why are all these people now standing in front? And she was, of course, referring to guards. And I have to say that it was one of the most difficult moments of my life. I'm usually not at a loss for words, but that morning I was at a loss for words. The America that we seek to defend must be there and defend our grandchildren and their grandchildren. And that's why I think that this conversation, I hope, will trigger further discussion at many Shabbat tables, and by the way, at many non-Jewish dinner tables about what more this country needs to do in order to ensure that it is safe for all Jews and non-Jews alike. Thank you so much, David. I couldn't agree more. And with that, since this program will air on Friday, I say Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. 
You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.